This is Reaching the Finish Line. And I'm your host, Callan Dix. Check out the website, www.reachingthefinishline.com. And pick up my free report. Save up to 75% what they don't want you to know. ReachingTheFinishLine.com And welcome. Today, I am delighted to have Tom Kirsting. Perhaps you've seen Tom on A&E because Tom uh, was the host of two former A&E Network series, Surviving Marriage and Monster in Loss. He's also a regular contributor on Fox News. He's a nationally renowned psychotherapist, author, and television personality. Uh, he has an upcoming book uh, that will be coming out uh, you know, shortly called Disconnected, How to Reconnect Our Digitally Distracted Kids. Definitely happy to have him on. Tom, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Cal. I appreciate it. Let's go back in time, Tom. I mean, you're, you're definitely a man of you know, uh, various uh, trades. You know, you've been a psychotherapist. You've been on TV. You've been an author. You know, you know, how did this start? You know, uh, you know was your parents uh, involved? Yeah. You know, yeah, well, well, let me t- well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I have a pretty interesting story. My, my uh, parents had four kids by the time they were 25 years old. Wow. I'm the, I'm the youngest of uh, – tw- I have a twin sister, brother that's two years older, and my oldest sister's five years older. Mm-hmm. So my parents really started behind the eight ball. So by today's standard, I grew up in a poor family. Um, you know, my parents really – my dad worked all kinds of side jobs. He had uh, – he was a police officer making $8,000 a year in 1975 supporting a family of six. Mm. So he did all these side jobs, um, cleaning out. Uh, we live right. We live in New Jersey, and he was a police officer right over to George Washington Bridge from New York, and he patrolled a you know pretty seedy area on Route 46 in New Jersey. And some of the side jobs that he had were cleaning the bathrooms at gas stations because he knew all the gas station owners and making five bucks a gas station and taking my brother and me when we were five years old with him. And then he progressed to getting some office cleaning jobs and doing clean out jobs for people's attics and basements. So my brother and I went along for the ride with him all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what happened for both of us is that for all of us, really, it really kind of drove into us, I guess, a pretty strong work ethic because, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't really come from much, but I've accomplished a lot, you know, Indeed. I, by today's standards. Yeah, for sure. And same time, uh, my parents wasn't really involved in my life, so uh, it was definitely hard, and I, I definitely struggled. And uh, so, and, and, and for a brief period, I definitely was homeless. So I can definitely relate to the struggle that a lot of people go through. You know, yourself, you know, kind of kind of coming from a poor family. You know, myself not really having parents there for me, and you know, definitely uh, it, it actually made us better people. You know, you're you're doing great things. You know, myself, I'm yeah. very very blessed and privileged to be where I'm at, and uh, really it just shows that just because you come from a bad background doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that your fate is doomed. Yeah, like for me, I mean, I, you know, we didn't really know any better. It was just that my parents were wonderful parents. I mean, really great people. It's just, you know, we just didn't, if I needed a basketball, I had to wait till Christmas to get it. You know, yeah. my dad couldn't just go to the store and get us a basketball. Yeah. You know, even clothes, they'd buy us used clothes and all that. But it didn't really bother us. It was just kind of the way it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, a kid of the 1980s, I mean, basically it was, you know, we're getting our, our tails booted out the front door and we're just running around with all the kids in town, mm-hmm. you know, all day long, having fun and socializing and so forth, which is what led me, part of the reason why I wrote this new book, Disconnected, um, How to Reconnect Our Digitally Distracted Kids, because 
life is different now. And kids are spending nine hours a day looking at a screen instead of looking at one another. And uh, <laughs> definitely it's, it's, it's preventing them from getting to that finish line, Callan, I'm telling you. For sure, indeed. Let's go to the moment when you graduated from high school. You know, I've talked to a lot of guests uh, on the show, and, and some of the guests, you know, sometimes they say, well, you know, their parents, they didn't have a choice. They say, you know, I don't want to hear it. You're going to college. And then other parents, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they give them the choice. You know, and, you know, so what was it like? You, you know, Did you choose to go to college or did your parents well, that, force you to go to college? Well, it was actually interesting. Neither of my parents went to college. Mm-hmm. They grew up in the Bronx in New York. Um, my dad was, is a Vietnam veteran. So they didn't go to college. So therefore – as far as, you know, them kind of coaching us into going to college, it was more like, you're going to go to college, but nobody knew how to go to college or where to go to college. So by May of my senior year in high school, I couldn't tell you if or where I was going to college, but I was fortunate to be blessed with a good right arm. I pitched, I was a baseball player and pitched at a very prolific uh, Catholic baseball high school in New Jersey. And then I got, got a, you know, got a couple looks and just sort of stumbled into a small college in New York and... Didn't do all that well freshman and sophomore year, nor did I care. Uh-huh. And about junior year is when I, I took a psychology course. Uh-huh. And uh, actually sophomore year, I took a psychology course and fell in love with psychology. And that's what led to everything I've done now. I wound up getting, you know, from after graduating with a degree in psychology and no job market in 1994, immediately went to graduate school, started working at a high school as a counselor, um, which I still do today. One of my jobs, in addition to being a psych- private psychotherapist. And get, you know, it can, just kept going. Got another master's, and then I got a, a doctoral degree, a, a non-traditional holistic degree in clinical hypnotherapy. Wrote a book, and then you know everything just sort of. So it's more like for me, it's always about believing in myself. All right, setting a goal for myself, and not letting anyone or anything prevent me from getting to that goal. And my goal right now, what I've been, or the platform that I've created, is my goal right now is to speak to the young people in this country, the millennials, children, and the parents, and try to get people reconnected again, reconnected to human beings, and, you know, get their faces out of these phones all the time, and start, you know, getting back to the basics. Indeed, very important. Uh, I definitely get a lot of emails and people telling me, you know, because, you know, one thing I do suggest here is, you know, definitely people consider uh, entrepreneurship just because all the benefits, the freedom and uh, the flexibility and, and you being your own boss and, 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 you know, overall, overall, it's, you know, there's, there's nothing like it. Uh, but oftentimes people, you know, they're already in college and they say, well, hey, you know, I just want to just, you know, finish my degree and I don't want to, I don't waste this money, which is perfectly understandable. You know, perhaps they may take a degree and go into their old trade and go into their trade, starting their own business, you know, but, mm-hmm. but people who are interested in psychology, because definitely we talk about this a lot on the show. Um, can you break down the differences between what is a psychotherapist, what is a psychiatrist, and what is a psychologist? Yeah, no problem. So number one, all right, so the first thing you have to do is graduate college, a four-year college, right, and have a degree. You don't even have to have a degree in psychology. You have to have something in the social sciences. I see. From there, you have different paths. So, so there's different types of licenses, state-to-state, mm-hmm. private practice licenses. You have your LCSW, which mm-hmm. is your licensed clinical social worker license. And the way in which you get that is you have to have a 60 credit master's degree. Okay. Mm. And that's just part of it. And then you have to do 4,500 hours over, over the course of three years of, uh, of supervised clinical work. Mm-hmm. All right. And then you have to take a very difficult test. Then there's mm-hmm. another type of license, which is what my license is, which is an LPC, which is a master 60 credit master. It's very similar to the LCS, LCSW, 
60 credit masters in counseling or related field, 4,500 hours of supervised training, difficult national counselors examination, and then psychologists, that's, um, that's a PhD, that's a doctorate in clinical psychology or a doctorate in school psychology, also known as a PsyD. So those are similar, similar tracks, a little bit more credits, and then there's a specific license that's pretty parallel to the LCSW or the LPC. Some psychologists, instead of doing clinical, which would be in an office, counseling people, do research type stuff, um, research studies and papers and all that. And then you have psychiatrists, mm-hmm. and psychiatrists are medical doctors. They go to medical school, they specialize in psychiatry, and the mind and and, 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 and human beings and human behavior. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, when you want to get medication for anxiety or depression, you'd go to a psychiatrist for that. So those are really the differences laying it out. Yeah, he definitely he laid it out very well. Um, and, and then from there, you know, um, you know, I mean, I mean, very, uh, <laughs> actually, this is the first time I hear someone explain it so eloquently to me. You know, I was definitely familiar <laughs> with all of the career paths, but it was hard for me to determine, you know, how they were different uh, from one another. I always knew they were similar, but I didn't know the exact differences. So uh, that, that, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely much appreciated. Start with a free audio book. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. You may not have a lot of free time, but you can definitely listen to a book on a plane, on the bus, or even while you're driving. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. Start reaching the finish line with your free audiobook. You know, let's talk about you know, uh, you know, what was the first uh, former A and E show you had? Was it, uh, you know, was it Surviving Marriage? Was it Monster in Laws? The first one was Monster in Laws. Okay, um, great. Yeah, start with and that. that. Was so yeah. So interestingly, how I got that gig is I had um, I wrote a book in two thousand seven, a weight loss book, oh, um, okay. and the publisher hired a publicist, and you know they got all sorts of uh, you know all sorts of media related stuff. So I did it. Did a little TV segment, not a not a, a show for like A and E, and it was my first time ever doing anything on camera. And then when I was done, you know, the lady behind the camera says, "Have you ever done any TV before?" And I said, "No." Why? She's like, "She said because you're a natural on camera." So I don't even know what the heck that means. So I figured out what that means. It means basically all I'm doing is being me. In the same way I'm talking to you right now is the same yeah. way I'd have a conversation with anybody. Yeah. So that lady, I got you know, I got connected with a, a big agent in New York City, out of Abrams Artist, um, you know, great guy and. You know, and there's been many different, I, you know, so I got selected to be the co-host of uh, a series called Monster In-Laws, which mm-hmm. basically was uh, season one was 13 episodes season and season two was 12 or 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. And essentially each episode featured a family of a married couple where there was an in-law, either a mother-in-law or father-in-law that was really uh, impacting their relationship. So the experts, myself and the other and the other expert would go into these families and sort of rebuild them from the ground up and uh, put them through all these different challenges and so forth. So after that, after that show, I had done, I actually did a pilot for the Food Network too, mm. a show that was called um, Can Dinner Save My Family? It was a really great, really good show. Um, went to pilot, didn't get picked up as a series. I did another one for National Geographic Channel, a show called Hardcore Hobbies, which were people that were addicted to certain like hobbies and collecting and all collectibles and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then after that, you know, I got selected to do, to do, um, show that was a year and a half ago called Surviving Marriage. Great show. Uh, that was a season, it was just one season, well-produced, and that 
particular show, um, each episode featured a married couple that was on the brink of divorce. Mm -hmm. And they had agreed to a last-ditch effort to save their marriage in the form of extreme marriage therapy. And so they didn't really know what they were getting into. So essentially, the extreme marriage therapy was that these couples were dropped off on a deserted island, mm -hmm. not knowing that this was going to happen, given, uh -huh. a, given a survival kit with instructions and had to spend three days just going through all these different uh, team building activities under pretty stressful conditions with limited food and water and so forth. So I was the co-host of that one, too. That lasted one season. Great show. But TV, you just never know, Callan. You yeah, know I mean, so I mean, I know the producer. I know the guy who created Pawn Stars. I know him real well. Uh -huh. It's one of the greatest shows in uh, television history. Indeed. And uh, who would have ever expected a show like that to just take off the way it has? And th that's just the nature of the game. For sure. You know. You know, as one of the producers discovered that you know, you definitely have a face for camera. You're definitely natural. Uh, you, you know, just being your. I mean, you you also definitely have a radio voice too. You could definitely have your own radio yeah. show. <laughs> I've been told that. The only problem is I wouldn't even know where to start to have my own radio show, nor do I know if I'd have the time. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so far we're talking. You, you definitely you definitely have a very interesting background, and I'm quite sure uh, a lot of people would like to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, hear that as a show program or, you know, it, it, it definitely resonates with a lot of people because a lot of people, you know, are going through, uh, you know, what you went through nowadays. You know, uh, you know, they say yeah. that the unemployment rate is 5%, uh, but, you know, you know, we turn to Gallup. Which is a very, uh, which is a very prestigious uh, surveying poll. Uh, you know, they have they have looked at uh, what they call good jobs, which is mean that people who are working thirty hours every week, so they're getting a steady paycheck, and they have found that only fifty five percent, I believe are actually working 30 hours a week. So so the other 45% are, are maybe working less or they don't even have a job. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, are really, they're unemployed, they're underemployed. They hate their job. They're not reaching their finish line. And, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when people look to sources of inspiration, sometimes people look to, towards a book. Or perhaps, you know, if you start your own radio program, they can look towards you. Well, you know, well, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that after. For sure. <laughs> but I'll tell you, just to get back to what you were saying, it's very, very interesting, okay? Yeah. So we are, and a lot of my, my private practice counseling that I do with people revolves around exactly what you're talking about, mm -hmm. about how to reach the finish line, all right? And the problem is a lot of people, you have to see the finish line in the distance. Indeed. And what I tell people all the time, if you, you know, when you said it, you can't let anybody tell you that, ah, oh, you can't do that. That's not possible. Like, for example, when I wrote my first book, I was very naive. And sometimes naivete mm -hmm. is a gift because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I told myself, I'm writing this book. I got this good stuff. This was this, uh, the first book I wrote about weight loss and using your subconscious mind. And I remember people saying, you can't get published. And I said, you know, I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. So I had to educate myself on the whole publishing industry, pitching agents, pitching publishers. And I got rejected probably about 100 times. Mm -hmm. But here's the key, Callie. You can't look at rejection as failure. You have to look at it as feedback. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it as, all right, well, that's 60 publishers I could cross off my list. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when I continued to be persistent, bang, the timing was right. There was a publisher who was looking for a holistic weight loss book, and they took a gamble with me. And if I didn't go for that, well, I wouldn't be on, this, I wouldn't be on, the, on the radio with you right now. How do you sure. like that? Because <laughs> um, it would have gotten to this point. So, yeah. um so the, the advice is, you got to, if you see something that you want, you know, it, there's a, in a, an old quote by Andrew Carnegie that goes like this, whether you think you can or think you can't, either way you are right. Mm -hmm. So start thinking you can, and then you will. 
For sure. I, I, he has a great book. It's called, I definitely recommend everyone check that out. I recently uh, wrote an article uh, for Huffington Post about it. Uh, it's called uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, it's an excellent oh, book. Good. Definitely, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely Dale recommend Carnegie, it. Dale Carnegie, yeah. That's yeah. one of my favorite. Oh, that's, that's right. That, that's his brother. Yes, Dale Carnegie. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Dale yeah. And he wrote another book called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. But mm-hmm. I've read that book, yeah, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. probably 10 times. And right. It's, there's great little stories about how to communicate in a backdoor way with people uh-huh. and, and, and show people that, you, that you're hearing them and understanding their perspective on something, and then uh-huh. you have a best friend for life. For sure, indeed. You know, you know it's, your, your background is so fascinating, especially you know, with the TV shows that you've done. And definitely, I hope maybe one day I can have my own TV show, maybe on who knows, you know, A&E or who knows – National Geographic, those type of things. And, sure. you know, a lot of people definitely, uh, Tom, they desire to go in that path. You know, they, you know, they would love to have their TV show. Let's talk about kind of, because you said you started with a pilot. So let's kind of exactly explain to the audience uh, what that is and perhaps what are some other steps that people can increase their chances of getting their own TV show on a yeah. major network. Yeah, so a show like that, like a cable network, we can call them docudrama series type shows. They're really reality shows. Um, so essentially, you know, number one, you need to have some sort of a specialty or, or something that's different than someone else. Like you see all these different shows that are on TV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, from that point, you have to have an agent, okay, which is not that, you know, if you work at it, you'll find an agent. Um, and then if you have an agent, you know, agents are basically in contact with production companies that are that have shows that they call are in development. So a show in development means that it's an idea. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean it's being developed. It's an in development, meaning that the producers of that production company are thinking about developing a specific show. Okay. So then, you know, if the producers come up with a great idea that they think would make a great TV show, they will put together a pitch packet. Okay. And something called a sizzle reel or a sizzle clip mm-hmm. of what that show might look like. And then they'll sit down and they will meet with, um, with networks like A&E Network, for example, or Food Network or We and stuff like that. So they'll meet with the executives there. They have existing relationships with them and they'll pitch the show concept to those executives. And if the executives say to themselves, wow, you know what? I think this is a pretty darn good idea. Mm-hmm. They will fund the development of a pilot. And a, and a pilot is essentially an episode. Mm-hmm. So a one hour episode is about, you know, on that you see on TV is about 42 minutes mm-hmm. of actual actual airtime um so they'll develop and there's a lot that goes into it like for example monster in laws you know those were half hour shows so those were like 21 minutes Mm -hmm. and they had they had roughly 60 hours of footage Mm -hmm. per episode that they had to edit into 21 minutes oh wow so you have so the real work is behind the scenes the guy in the closet the editor piecing together and creating you know each episode and they can kind of you know they can they're pretty creative with that stuff so it's you know it's doable. You know, the best idea is if you, you don't even have to have an agent. If you come up and you have a really good show idea that you think would, would uh, you know, that would percolate with, um, that would resonate with people, mm-hmm. right? To, you got to put together a whole treatment, an idea of what the show is, a breakdown of it, and then you can start reaching out to, you know, production companies all on your own without an agent. And then sure. at that point, if you wanted to get an agent, if you have a meeting with a production company and they like your idea, and then you tell, and you contact an agent, an agent is going to sign you on <laughs> after that. Want the full episode? You can get it when you become a premium radio subscriber. Go to reachingthefinishline.com forward slash buy to get your subscription today. What do you get? You get things like early access to the episodes, commercial-free 
one-hour episodes, mastermind calls with our guests, freebies from our guests, as well as much more. Go to regionalfinishline.com forward slash buy to get your premium subscription for it's another way for you to start reaching your finish line. Like right now, what I've been doing more of, um, I've been doing uh, I mean, I, on Fox and Fox News, Fox and Friends. I go on there a lot. As uh-huh. um, that's different. That's you know network news. Indeed. So I go on there for a lot of different segments, like expert segments on parenting, right. on relationships and stuff. So my next goal, you know, as I move forward, is to maybe be like a, a you know a rotating co-host on a show like that. That I would love to do. Oh yeah, we'll see. I'm gonna That'll make it happen. That would be great. I'm going to make it. You you definitely have the personality for it. I could definitely see you doing that uh, very well. Um, You know, one question that I would imagine the listeners would ask is, who would fund the pilot? Would it be you funding the pilot or would it be the the TV show funding the pilot or the network? Would it be the the agent funding the pilot? It it, it sounds kind of similar to um, book publishing, but maybe a little different Uh, because that's that's essentially – that's, that's essentially the the, the, the the resource that really gets mm-hmm. you put on, you know. So so who actually yeah. funds that? So the funding of the pilot would come from the network. So like let's take A and E for example. All right, A and E, you know, they have I think they have a couple of shows that they produce on their own. Mm-hmm. But any show that you see, any of the reality shows that you see on an A and E network, mm-hmm. those are produced by independent production companies. So okay. the production companies will sell their idea to that network. And then the network will say, all right, we're going to put up the money to develop this pilot. And after the pilot is developed, okay, after the production company develops the pilot that has been funded by the network, they will sit down afterwards with the executives of the network and the executives of the network will take a look at that pilot and they will say to themselves, wow, this is a great show. We're going to buy 10 episodes of a season one. Okay. That's how the production companies now make their money. Now they're working and they're producing episodes or they might say, you know what? We really like it, but we just don't think it's gonna. We just don't think it's gonna fit in to our network. I see. And so, and a follow-up question would be: Now, the the host, you know, as you was, you know, you you was you was the uh, co-host of Monster in Laws. Uh, you was the host of Surviving Marriage. You know how? Because because again, it sounds it sounds somewhat. Sim- I mean, I'm an author. Uh, eventually, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, later next year, later next year, uh, I'll. Uh, my goal is to start a publishing company, and it sounds somewhat similar, but I mean, there are some differences from what you're saying. Uh, how does a host actually get paid? Do they get paid before the show even airs? Do they get paid off of the ads on the commercials? Yeah, so a host is basically what they call the talent, okay? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So now your agent, all right, so if they have, if you're selected, let's say there's a show mm-hmm. and they, they're looking for two experts, two psychotherapists, okay, mm-hmm. like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, your agent would negotiate a per episode rate. All right, so for each episode that you film, you're going to get a certain dollar amount. Okay, for each episode in like a season one. So if it's ten episodes, you're going to get that rate per episode. Now, where you can make potentially the big bucks is if a show, you know, goes to a season two. Okay, good, you get a little bit more. Once it goes to a season three or more, now you're kind of in the driver's seat because that show's now got some serious legs, and you're now the face of that show. So now your agent can negotiate in high, a higher episode rate, you know, moving forward after from a season three on. That's how you make money on it. I see. Very interesting. I, I, I appreciate you for for sharing that because a lot of people are very are interested, but they don't know how to really get into it. They don't know how it works. So yeah. Uh, now the other thing now, now if you're now here's another thing now if you create your own show, okay, you have a great concept, all right, and you're the and you're also the talent of that show, okay, but you're also the creator. 
you're now you're not and, and you sell this to a network you are now also the co-executive producer of that show so not only are you getting your talent pay but whatever if that show really takes off you're part owner of that show and you're gonna make you make that's where you can make some serious uh serious dinero also i haven't yeah. gotten to that point yet yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, that's why I tell a lot of people, even though if they're not extremely famous, people that I see who have a following of, you know, four or five thousand or, you know, just on Facebook or people who have a, a combined following of twenty five thousand people. I tell those people like, you know, you know, you know, if a person wants to really you know, like publish a book, it'll probably be best, you know, if they really if they want to make money from it to self publish it because because huh. they, they already have the customers, you know, right, right there waiting wait for them to buy, you know, as opposed to. But it's interesting that you say that because my new book that's coming out this Friday, mm-hmm. Disconnected, How to Reconnect Your Digitally Distracted Kids, mm-hmm. I'm a traditionally published author. My first right. book was traditionally published. So mm-hmm. this book, when I was writing it and putting a proposal together, I had a big agent in New York City you know, ready to go. And I started really investigating the whole publishing industry. Mm-hmm. And it was in my best interest to publish this thing on my own because I'm the one that's promoting the book anyway. Even if I, even if I have a traditional publisher, I'm the one doing all the legwork. Like I'm That's doing true. right now. That's why I'm on yeah. you right now because I want to get the word out. Talk to you. You're a great guy, and I want to get the word out about this book also. For sure. So yeah. So- yeah, 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 for sure. I, I was, yeah, I was a, a traditionally published as well. So uh, I definitely, uh, it was definitely a shocker, you know, when, you know, after I signed the contract and all said and done and the book was releasing it, just to, just to see how much work the publisher did on the marketing end compared to all the work I did, you know, I was, I was expecting for it to be more of a joint effort. So yeah, you know, you yeah. know, definitely, you definitely so have to, gonna, yeah. Yeah, today, in the, today's day and age with publishing, especially with nonfiction publishing like us, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, if you have a platform, you know, like me, I go on TV a lot, you know, sure. and I can always promote books. And I, you know, I don't have a big, I'm not a big social media person. My yeah. book is actually about, you know, staying away from social media a little bit more because we're addicted <laughs> to it. Uh, yeah. You know, so like if you have a platform, you're going to get, you know, you can go, a traditional publisher is going to salivate because they know that you, you have a big reach, Indeed. but that's not necessarily to your advantage. You know, you could, you have that big reach already. It's because you're better off just doing it on your own, but you just have to do it right. I and mean, you got to hire an editor to do it right. You got to get a good cover design or a good formatter. All that stuff. Just make sure you have a good product. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Let's get into this book, which I'm very excited. You know, as we, you know, nowadays, you know, uh, Generation Zers, you know, the people, uh, you know, who are kind of 16, uh, 16 up to about 26, I believe. It, you know, that's, that's kind of like the, uh, the, 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 the Gen Zers, more or less. And you know, you wrote the book Disconnected: How to Reconnect Our Digitally Distracted Kids. And mm-hmm. part one, you start with the impact of electronic devices on mm-hmm. kids' brains. Now, a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people say, "Well, you know, well, you know, we need the internet because the internet is the best source of information, and you know, it's a great way to educate ourselves." But, but you talk about the impact of electronic devices on on people's brains. So let's let's get into that. Yeah. So again, so let me I'll clarify. There's nothing wrong with computers and the internet and smartphones. Mm-hmm. But it's because when it becomes a problem is when the average 13-year-old spends eight hours a day in front of a screen, okay? And the average person over 18 spends about nine hours a day. That's when it becomes an incessant, somewhat addictive problem. So how I got, I'll tell you how I got the pulp to writing this book. I, uh, I work at a high school during the day. I'm a counselor, and then I, got, I told you I got my private practice. I go to every day after that. Mm-hmm. So I run this committee called the Intervention and Referral Services Committee. And we get, and basically, we'll get referrals where parents will want to meet with us because their kid has a disability mm-hmm. and they want to try to get accommodation. So, you know, usual, in the, historically, different disabilities, like kid has a concussion, mm-hmm. kid has Crohn's disease or some other illness. 
So in around 2009, we started getting this influx of kids that were 14 and 15 years old that had been recently diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know what ADHD is. Indeed. So some, something wasn't adding up to me. I have a strong background in psychology. And I'm saying to myself, you know, I'm talking like every other day, we're getting a new referral out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, what, you know, what, what's going on here? You don't catch attention deficit disorder. Uh-huh. So, you know, because the average age of diagnosis is age eight. And by age five, it's very obvious if a kid has ADHD. So I started researching it and I came across these great researchers out of UCLA and they had coined this term called acquired attention deficit disorder. That's what fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And what that means basically is that all of these kids, not all of them, but a large percentage of them are actually misdiagnosed. They have the symptoms of attention deficit disorder, the inattentiveness, the lack of focus, the disorganization, etc. But they didn't have the neurological condition. And the reason why they were displaying these symptoms in the classroom is because their brains had rewired themselves from spending so much time in a highly stimulating world known as technology. If people want to follow you, uh, or get in contact with you and perhaps where they can buy the book. How do they do that? So first of all, you can go to the, if you go to Amazon, you mm-hmm. can buy the book. Just go to Amazon, type in Tom Kirsting. The book will come right up. Type in Disconnected, how to, how to uh, reconnect our digitally distracted kids. The book will come up. It comes out officially on Friday mm-hmm. this week, uh, December 23rd, but it's available for pre-order. Mm-hmm. If you want to reach out to me, just go to my, uh, my website. It's my name, www.tomkirsting.com. That's T O M. K-E-R-S-T-I-N-G dot com. And then my Twitter handle is um, at Tom Kirsting. And then Facebook, uh, just go to, I guess, just Google Facebook Tom Kirsting and you'll get to my Facebook page. Great. So I try to put some good stuff out there. I'm just not really great at it, to be honest with you. I'm kind of anti it, as you would imagine, but I got to kind of, you know, <laughs> it's a good way of getting people. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Tom, thanks for being our guest. My, hey, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Callum. Thank you. For listening, just another great episode by Callan Diggs, best-selling author and career strategist at Seen at Fast Company and Inc. Magazine. If you're not an email list, you're missing out. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and subscribe to get all the exclusives.